I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, I watched Hulu's Vacation Friends starting, starring um, Yvonne Orji, Lil Rel, and uh, John Cena, um, and I want to talk about it. But first, um, there's a lot of media, actually, um, that has been on my mind this last week that I don't think I want to devote a whole episode to, so I'm just going to talk about it here. Um, first up is revisiting um, Reservation Dogs. Um, there, since the three-episode release or premiere of the show, there has been some criticism about the show's portrayal of hip-hop culture and black sense and blackness as it's it's blackness as a whole um and there's a lot there's think pieces that are coming out but there are all there are also some threads on twitter that have come up um and in my sphere of black twitter my little corner of black twitter um i've been paying attention to or i have the privilege of being connected to folks who are black folks that are living in the south West. And so these folks don't purport themselves to be indigenous culture experts, but it's a culture that they have grown up around and currently live around right now. Um, not that, not that that makes them experts again, but like that's a culture that they're near. Um, and their perspective of the show was at first, I'm holding out hope to see how they'd play this because there's some real interact in there's some real life interactions that still play out that are very due to, you know, the nature of how racism works and pitting brown people against each other. There's some real life racism that happens that I'm wondering if they'll even touch. And what I've come to see in the progression of this conversation is from their perspective, the show isn't really touching it. So I need to sit with that information, reread what they're talking about, recognizing that there are just some Twitter thugs out there that just love to hide behind Twitter fingers and say that everything is terrible, but not like provide any real critique. So I'm trying to filter those folks out and only focus on those folks that I know to be organizers in real life. They're about that action in real life. And they're speaking from a black, pers- a black person's perspective, living in the Southwest, in and around ind- indigenous culture and what they for real see. So I just need to sit with the information and watch the rest of the series and circle, my, circle back around to it. I may circle back around to it next episode. Depends. Um, Depends on how I feel. Maybe it'll take me a little bit, but I just did want to come in and say, like, I'm still very excited that the show exists, but it does. It can't be everything to everybody, but I'm I'm actually sick of that excuse because that was the same excuse that In the Heights gave. Right. About not being more inclusive of Afro Latina folks and Latinx folks. When, if you go to that neighborhood, anybody that lives in um, New York, especially in the neighborhoods of uh, Brooklyn Heights, well, what is it? Is it Brooklyn Heights? I think that's the neighborhood they're supposed to portray. But anyway, every every black person that I know, they got people up there or has people. Actually, yes, every in Baltimore, you run into folks who have people just like you. You run into folks typically that have people that in the South, you 
always run into people who have people in, in, um, in New York. Everybody on the East Coast knows somebody who either has spent a lot of time in the city or has got people that live there now. And one of my very good friends has people that live there right now. Whole, all, the whole family there, mama from there, right? And so, like, when I've gone to visit with them, the communities that I'm seeing, Black and Latinx folks that I'm seeing, especially folks who are afro I see a whole bunch of Afro-Latino people, a bunch of them, all over in the Bronx, and I've been in the Heights. I can't tell you that I've seen all the Heights, but I definitely saw a, br- a lot more brown people who were... Actually, hold on. My, my, one of my sorors, one of my close sorors is Latinx. I, I didn't even... And, and guess where she's from? Guess where she's from? She's from uh, she up there in the Heights. That's where she... And I totally, totally lost my mind. I keep forgetting because her accent is real strong when she's mad. When she has an attitude, that's when her accent is real strong. And I'm like, oh, I keep forgetting where you're from. Anyway, but um, no, like... So the represent... The... the colorism in the show was kind of a bit much or the film was a bit much was exactly why I didn't want to watch it and I don't think I will watch that show even though I love me some um that lead guy he cute anyway um but yeah so like you saying that there has to this show exists and there's nothing like it out right now and there hasn't been anything like it for a long long time if there ever was and so that needs that needs it's justice right it's just due um, as my daddy would say, but that's not an excuse to not get it right. Like, and if you're going to talk about it, you really need to talk about it. Like if you're going to portray black culture and hip hop culture, you need to understand all of the nuances to it because they certainly talk about white people and how ignorant they are in the show. So you can talk about, get, say it all, tell it all because our shows tell it all. Like, are they all perfect? No, but like, tell it all. So, but anyway, I just need to sit with the information and circle back around. Um, Yeah, I just need to sit with the information and circle back around um, to it. Next thing that I want to talk about, because I don't want to drag this all out. Um, The next thing I want to talk about, um, well, two more things. Just two more and then I'll turn it over. Um, So I watched, I literally just like a day or two ago, watch this documentary, the name I cannot remember, but the documentary was about this gay man who was from Australia, moved to the United, uh, moved to the UK. Um, and in like, at, before he left Australia, he was an activist, a young activist, but like maybe he was like 19 when he left. Um, 19 when he left the UK because he was trying to dodge the draft um, from the Vietnam War. He was dodging the draft and went to the UK and he was an activist then and became, you know, really blossomed into his activism when he moved to the UK, only he accepted his sexuality as being himself being a gay man. And he was going to fight for gay liberation, as he says. Um, <clears throat> and also, I, well, anyway, fight for gay liberation. But the biggest thing about this guy's history that people tend to talk about. It's not the only thing, but the biggest thing about his history that that they like to talk about, and certainly what this documentary spends some real time discussing, is that in the 80s, in the height of the AIDS crisis, when folks, 
especially in the Christian world, but just generally speaking, folks in across the country, across the globe, I was about to say country, the globe, let's be for real, were blaming AIDS on and saying that AIDS was specific to gay people, gay men specifically. Um, and folks in the Christian world were saying that it's the gay, the gay disease. It's because of the sin of being queer um, and all of that foolishness, right? And so this man decided that he had shown up until this point in his life that direct actions work. He, in the documentary, said that he studied the black civil rights movement in the United States and the uh, suffragette, he names the suffragette movies, the movement of the, tw- of the 1900s and the civil rights movement of the 1960s as the thing that encouraged him to do direct action because you can beg and plead for a thing and that's all well and good, but the thing that actually is the catalyst for change is you getting up in somebody's face and demanding that thing that you know you deserve. Um, this human right that should have been given to you, that was given to you at birth, and you want folks to recognize that. Um, you know, direct action is the way to go. And when, and when he's saying direct action, it's let's, in his, con, in his context, he's, you know, let's storm um, meetings, public, highly publicized meetings to make a statement. Let's, um, you know, do something shocking where the cameras are around so that we can bring attention to this thing. Not this. So the shot, so so the action is a catalyst for you to pay attention to the message that I'm pushing. And so in this guy's incredible body of work of, of demonstrating and bringing attention to atrocities and trying to support really spending a bulk of his life, um, fighting for, the rights for queer folks to exist like everyone else. Um, even to this day, he's still doing that work. But there's a, arguably, a, a lot of people believe that he's done a lot of good. Um, his direct actions, his antics have caused people to be embarrassed and embarrassment leads to change in a lot of ways, which is pretty trifling, but that's what it is. And so he's kind of harnessed that understanding and flipped it on its head. It's like, okay, so the only way you're going to change is if I embarrass you. Okay, bet I'm going to embarrass you. And he's done that at great risk to his body, to his own body. He's received as a result of embarrassing some pretty high profile people, including Robert Ngambe. Um, he's been beaten several times on camera, um, trying to call attention to the atrocities that these folks are, or the, the atrocities that they're directly involved with, or the policies that ultimately, that they, the policies that these people support that are directly causing harm to the queer community and, 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 and just people in general. And so he's done this work for decades, right? But the thing that he's most sensationalized for is what he did in the late 80s, early 90s at the height of the AIDS crisis when the whole world, including the Christian world or the bulk of the world, including the Christian, most of the Christian world was blaming AIDS on gay people, specifically gay men and saying AIDS only impacted gay men um, and calling it the gay disease, basically. Um, 
he decided, okay, so based, oh, and um, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher has gone on record to basically, she was pushing uh, legislation. She was pushing, she, her party was pushing legislation that basically made it illegal to talk about, um, which is very like a lot of the stuff that's happening here in the United States. Um, but it made it illegal to talk about homosexuality and sex, uh, homosexual, uh, gay people having sex or queer people having sex. Um, and, um, also, so it criminalized talking about it, which meant public demonstrations were now arrestable offenses. Um, you couldn't protest about it. You couldn't produce literature about it or else you'd be arrested at that time in the eighties. Uh, as it is still the case in some countries around the globe, it is a crime for you to um, have consensual sex with someone who is identifies as queer. If you both identify as queer, it's illegal. It was illegal. It was illegal in more parts of the country or more parts of the world back in the late 80s, early 90s than it is now. But nevertheless, there's still some countries where it's illegal. And anyway, so because there was a lot of he was very angry because gay folks were blamed for AIDS, which we know now know that that's not true. It's just easily spread through um, unprotected sex. Um, and the issue back in the 80s, 70s and 80s was that unfortunately gay men were having a lot of unprotected sex. Unprotected sex is the spreader here, not the people. It's the it's not because they're gay. It's because they were having unprotected sex. Like we know that, right? We know that we know that now, right? I'm saying it just in case somebody's confused. Um, unprotected sex. Anyway, unprotected sex is the thing that spread this thing, not the fact that they were gay. Um, so anyway, um, so there was legislation that was put out that was basically made it, it made, basically made it illegal to talk about being gay. Um, and, and yeah, in any form, literature, what have you. And so being completely fed up, his direct action group decided that one of the ways that they were going to cause a stink, and this was a high culmin- culmination of many years of work and, and protest, was that they were going to start outing men who were gay in those high powered positions. And he justified, he and his group justified outing someone, which again is, if you don't know what outing is, I'm sure everybody should know, but outing in a nutshell is telling something that somebody hasn't told before. In this context, it's telling someone's sexual attraction that hasn't told that the world doesn't know and they haven't told the world because it would be, in this case, they felt that it would harm their career, harm their family, harm their relationship with their family and harm their relationship with their friends. Now, um, in this context though, this person justified, this person in his group justified outing these men as gay, which I think outing, I don't know if it's illegal, but it should be illegal to out someone because that is, feels like that should be a crime. If it's not, it should be. Um, but anyway, so they outed these high profile men in the UK because as, as gay, because they, um, 
directly these men, although they were gay, closeted as gay men, they actively espoused hate rhetoric against the queer community and they pushed legislation that was further harming the gay community. And so this guy's approach and his, and his group's approach was, all right, bet. Well, you know what? We're going to make it so that you stop using your bully pulpit, whatever it is, to stop spousing these things. Because guess what? The thing you're talking against, you're actually it. You're actually gay. You're talking about gay people, but you're gay. And a lot of, there are many parallels to, um, what happened has happened over the decades in the United States. Y'all know there have been several senators, several Republican senators who preached moral values, according to the GOP, um, and, you know, right living and two men being together is wrong, but we want to preach traditional family values. I don't know why I adopted that accent. But anyway, mostly because I think they were from the South. Anyway, that was still rude. But, um, and then I remember one, I cannot remember his name, but I definitely remember one. He was having um, an affair with his legislative aide, his male legislative aide. Um, and in the midst of this, I think it was a governor. Was he a governor? It's been so many. But one of them, girl, one of them fled the country. Fled the country for fear of being outed. Totally hateful. Completely hateful. And fled the country so as to not be exposed. Like that did a lot of fat, fat lot of good. Like he was gone for a month. And nobody knew where he was until they found him in, in like Brazil or some junk like that. But anyway, like running from the consequences of his own actions, talking against his community that he was gay. He, he wasn't dabbling. That man was gay. Either bi, he was bi. At least he was bi. My bad. Uh, he might have been bi. Right. But the point is. Engaging in acts that he was directly in public saying were damnable offenses and, and, and amoral, right? So I, I can appreciate wanting to expose clowns like that. But like if it's wrong to expose Joe Blow or Jackie Blow or Sam for their, who they love, your sex, my sex life is none of, my sex life is none of your business. It's also this, if it's, so if it's wrong to do that for the regular person, it's also wrong to do that for political people, get them in other ways, but don't do that because how can you just, so anyway, this, this documentary talks about a whole bunch of stuff, but that's the most salacious because people really hated him for doing that. And I don't agree. I don't disagree. You expose these clowns. I appreciate you for exposing these clowns. And as a result, what I think the, the documentary said that these people never spoke negatively about, they never spoke in favor of this legislation again, and they never publicly spoke, or at least from their positions of power, spoke about, spoke negatively about queer people again, which, okay, you got yourself some results, but that was dangerous as all get out because again, I think these fools expose themselves. I think there are other ways that you can expose them, but to out somebody publicly, that's dangerous because the, the door you open, you can't hardly shut. So if you open that door against your enemies, what's stopping your enemies from coming around and, and keeping it and coming right through that same door at you? 
based on your tactics. That's the thing that we're missing sometimes in these direct actions. That baby, you better be ready. And it seems like this person is ready for whatever because he don't care. But like, I don't think everybody on his team is like that. And I don't, I just don't think people understand that again, Twitter gangsters, like you talk a good game, but what happens when it turns around? You better be ready. That door you open, you better be ready for something. The door you open and come through, you better be ready for something else to come through at you. That's the thing. And, and most of us are, most of us aren't built for that. So anyway, it was a very interesting documentary. I think it's, everybody hates this guy's name. It's on Netflix. It's pushed to the top. You'll be able to find it. Um, it's a very interesting documentary. Like, I think there's a lot of good that he's done, but that one, that, that time in his life didn't sit good, didn't sit well with me. That direct action, direct action didn't sit well with me. Um, the last thing I want to talk about um, is the Bob Ross documentary, which Melissa McCartney and I think her husband are uh, pro- executive producers on. Long story short, everybody knows Bob Ross, the original ASMR um, artists who intentionally whispered because he was talking to his audience was predominantly uh, women when he first came on uh, on the scene and he was low-key flirting with these women like that was a ploy him speaking softly was a ploy for them to keep watching and to be keep being enthralled with him fair play fair play well, well played, my dear. Well played. Um, and that the Afro was manufactured. He got a perm. That was a perm. His hair was straight. He got his hair permed. Anyway, down to the thing that broke my heart the most, I thought, I guess I thought the Bob Ross company and his likeness and image was still in the family. It's not, y'all. It's not. So all them Bob Ross videos that you be watching on YouTube, all them, all the times you watching Bob Ross on Netflix or or uh, on any of the streaming services, you're actually giving money to his enemies. Per as according to this documentary. Now it's very. This documentary does not the Mikulski, the Kowalskis, the Kowalskis were his business partner. That at, upon his death, he did not want them to have anything to do with the company that he had built. He wanted everything to go to his brother and his son. But what ended up happening is his brother signed away the company and without the son's knowledge, and it's a mess. Um, And there's rumors of cheating um, and a relationship in there between one of the Kowalskis and Bob Ross. Um, There's a lot there's a lot in there, but the, I guess the moral, the main idea of the story, the main takeaway for me is I got to find a way to support. I got to find a way to get my Bob Ross kicks without supporting the Bob Ross company right now, because that's not owned by his people. That's owned by the Mikulskis. And maybe that's me being unfair, but this documentary is kind of very in your face and direct and and it doesn't include anybody that's on the Kowalski side because I think one of the things that the uh, the show notes the documentary notes is that the Kowalskis are very litigious um so maybe it's a little unfair maybe it's a little slanted but like I don't know like his his son pretty adamantly said straightforward um 
My daddy did not want his company to be in the hands of the Kowalskis, and that's exactly where it is. If you are supporting the Bob Ross company today, you're not supporting the Ross family. You're supporting the Kowalski family. And it's very interesting because it turned it all on its head. And if what the documentary is sharing based on what um, Bob Ross's son is saying, then the Kowalskis are trash. If it's true, they're trash. So anyway, we will see, my dears. We will see. We will see. Um, but anyway, but now to now to move right along to what I actually want to talk about today, um, which is the Vacation Friends movie on Hulu. Um, I have a lot of feelings about this, and I'm going to work through them while I'm talking. So just be ready for that. Thank you so much. If you're a first-time listener, I appreciate you. I ramble from time to time. Um, I'm all over the place, but I eventually get back to the point. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you feel like leaving a uh, message, I will read it if it's positive. Rating the show, you know, four or five stars is awesome. I appreciate that. Um, on the Purple app or anywhere you, Purple app, the um, the Apple podcast app or any of the places where you listen, Spotify, um, any of the places that you listen, I'd appreciate it. This is a hobby that I do. It's just something fun I do on the side and I enjoy doing it. So any way that you can help me to keep doing this by sharing episodes and rating this thing positively and leaving comments is going to help me out, help raise the visibility of this show. And so I appreciate you. But so uh, in the next segment, it's all about um, vacation friends which is something that everybody kind of does. I might, I, the concept of vacation friends is not foreign to me because every time my parents go, or at least went on a vacation, be it a cruise, actually it was mostly cruises that they would go on that they would never take me on, but whatever. They would go on cruise and come back and have pen pals in a married couple that they, that they met literally and would exchange, it would exchange letters. And it wasn't just one-sided. My parents would write them and these people would write back. And I'm not talking about like typing it, handwritten notes back and forth. I remember one couple that they befriended. They were like 20 something. And my parents at the time were in their late 40s, early 50s. But it befriended this 20 something couple and just had a ball. And, and I think that they were pen pals for almost a year, if not a little bit longer before, you know, it kind of dies out, but it never ceased to amaze me, the friends that they would acquire on these trips. Now, my thinking is like, you don't talk to nobody you don't already know, but like how at the end of the day, how do you have fun? But you do need to be careful, but like, yeah. So like the concept of vacation friends is not a foreign one to me. It's just I can appreciate how you get your little circle of friends in that moment. And then when you go back to your several homes, wherever you are, that that kind of relationship for the most part is dead, right? It's gone because everybody understands that that was for that moment. But this, this show, this movie kind of posits what happens, or at least the premise of this thing is what happens when your vacation friends don't go home or they pop up in your real life, what do you do then? Um, Or at least that's the the top level of what I'm thinking this thing is about. Um, So in the next segment, it's all about the particulars of the the movie itself, who it stars. Um, 
think there's any box office information, but I'll give you the particulars of it. Um, and then I will go into the premise and then I will just talk about the thing. I'm going to spoil the heck out of it. So, you know, be you're forewarned. So I'm going to try to hold back, but uh, there's no guarantee. Anyway, um, so in the next segment, it's all about vacation friends. So, to talk about the particulars of Vacation Friends, it is a a new film, um, Hulu film, that was released on um, August 22nd, so last, by the time you're reading this, or reading, by the time you are um, listening to this, it was last week, Friday. Um, like I said, it's a Hulu film. Its ratings are about where I would think most people would rate it. So it's 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb. Again, if you've listened to me for any length of time, I have no idea how those scores are are calculated. Who are the folks that are doing the voting? Um, Is it other writers, directors? Is it other actors? I have no idea. And I'm not going to look. So if it's not, it's not readily apparent to me who the reviewers are, you know, whatever. I assume it's people connected to the film industry. Um, 60% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which is an amalgamation of both the audience score and critics. Um, and sometimes they differ greatly. Sometimes the audience really enjoys a thing and critics do not. Um, and anyway, it's 60, 60%. I know that 100% fresh is like a coveted thing um, that a lot of um, movies won't. Um, but I also know that there are a lot of trolls out there. And so these scores are relative, right? It's dependent on the motivation behind the scorer or the reviewer, right? You would think, like once upon a time, y'all remember, if you're in my, uh, if you're like an older millennial, apparently I'm an older millennial. Um, If you're you're an older millennial like me, then you remember growing up with Siskel and Ebert and other reviewers who you took at face value that they were reviewing a thing honestly. Um, Because... And the only reason why I took it at face value is because, number one, I was naive. I was more naive about the world. Number two, I saw, even when I was a child, I recognized that sometimes Roger and Siskel, uh, Roger, Roger Ebert and Siskel, no, Siskel, Roger and Siskel and Ebert. I don't know their, I, shoot, I didn't mess up their first names. Anyway, um, but Siskel and Ebert, I can remember them critiquing, I remember watching Saturday mornings. Can't remember if it was on PBS or what channel, but I typically on Saturday mornings, I was always on PBS. The KCPT uh, was the channel that I watched of a Saturday morning. Um, because sometimes the cartoon reruns, the time at which I was watching it, the cartoon reruns were like lame. Like I did not, I was not into the cartoons that were on because my sophisticated self was watching, um, 
was watching recorded cartoons from the 80s uh, because my uh, siblings that I lived with, um, they were some recording fools. And fun fact, I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the show before, and I'm way off topic, but I'm going to get back. Um, Do y'all remember there was a series of animated cartoons, well, cartoons revolving around the Ghostbusters. There was one show called The Real Ghostbusters. That's not the one. I'm, the real Ghostbusters looked like the Ghostbusters from the 80s movies, right? So they had Egon and all of them. There was one Ghostbusters cartoon whose name I cannot remember. It had Ghostbusters in it, but like it wasn't. It was like this was Ghostbusters. And the other one that was called The Real Ghostbusters was more true to the 80s film. And uh, with, with Dan Aykroyd and um, all of them, right? Um, the, the more famous one whose name, I cannot call the more famous one. He played in uh, Groundhog Day. You know who I'm talking about. He played in that cringy old film with uh, Scarlett Johansson when they were in Japan. And at one point she was in her drawers. I, you know who I'm talking about. He's, he's a comedian. He's, uh, I don't know. Anyway, but not, there was a cartoon that was closely based, from the 80s, closely based on the film, The Ghostbusters, which I loved. But then there was a cartoon that was called The Ghostbusters. The, one was called The Real Ghostbusters and one was called The Ghost, Ghostbusters. I think the one that I was into was The Ghostbusters. And what made it different is because they had two human characters, a witch and a gorilla that wore a backpack and a hat. I loved it the most because, number one, it was a cartoon. So, like, it was, it was out there, right? It was like dealing with space and all of this stuff. And also, I am a villain type of person. I enjoy villains. And like Ursula was my favorite. Ursula in The Little Mermaid. I watched Little Mermaid for Ursula because Ursula was bad. Like bad as in good. Like I loved her, her lavender skin. I loved her silver coif. Um, I loved her body kind. Um, yeah, she was a terrible person. She did bad things, but like she looked really good. Um, and anyway, <clears throat> so, and I got to be honest with you, Poison Ivy is my favorite. Poison Ivy is one of my favorites. All she wanted, she just wanted to heal the world. I mean, and also like, you know, use nature to get her enemies, but like she really wanted to, you know, harness the power of nature. Anyway, um, But anyway, so like the villains in this particular Ghostbusters that I'm talking about, and it's clear, the picture, it's like one, two, the human character, the two human characters. One is obviously the blonde leader guy. There's a brunette, heavier, supposedly dumb guy. It's the witch, and she was kind of lavender. Her skin was kind of lavender. And then the gorilla, who wore shorts, a hat, and a backpack. Um, And that was the gang, basically. And um, they fought through science. They were able to time travel and go into outer space and all of that stuff, the deepest recesses of space, and fight, fight bad guys. Um, because, you know, all 80s cartoons were very, very propaganda-y. Um, but anyway, uh, well, shoot, they are now. Anyway, um, but one of the villains 
was like a skeletal looking some so and so and so with that wore bomb robes, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but he also played the organ. And the other reason, which leads me to the, the the real reason why I really, really just enjoyed this cartoon, other than it tickled my um, sci-fi fancy, was the music. The score of this film or the um, uh, cartoon was everything. But like it didn't have a lot of seasons and it it failed compared to the real Ghostbusters. Um, and now why did I bring that up? I only brought it up in reference to, and I'm terrible, but I brought it up in reference to Siskel and Ebert, who I don't think were industry, like they were of the industry, but they like did their own thing because like I said, of the two Ghostbusters, the, the, um, the Ghostbusters that I'm talking about was the better Ghostbusters, but it didn't last um, because the industry and certainly the everybody else wanted something closer to the actual 80s film, the Ghostbusters. I can remember watching Siskel and Ebert and them reviewing mainstream movies, big time blockbuster films and panning them despite them winning, having commercial success, like Buku, like big time commercial success. I can remember them panning some big time films. I cannot recall one at the time, but I definitely remember as a child watching them of a Saturday morning, probably on PBS and uh, uh, KCPT, uh, Kansas City Public Television, um, and really looking at them in a, as an authority. Again, still very much taking a p- one person's word for it, or in this this uh, scenario, a duo's word for it, instead of forming my own opinion because I was coming into my own. And you know, as a child, for the most part. You're taught to trust your uh, someone who's purporting to be an authority before you only you, you know you form your own opinion in any way. Like even though I take, I look back on those times and I take it with a grain of salt. I still do appreciate where they were coming from because it always felt even unto even today it feels more authentic than a lot of some reviewers that are out now. Like a case in point, IMDb. I really don't understand the motivation or where these people are coming from. Sometimes, in my opinion, they get a right. Sometimes they have something scored super low and I'm like, I don't get why this is super low. Um, And then sometimes they have something scored super high and again, I don't understand it. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, because that's so subjective, like I don't even, all of it is subjective, but really Rotten Tomatoes is subjective because everybody has a motivation. Everybody has a, everybody has um, an angle. And I can remember listening to, I listened to a lot of uh, film critic podcasts. Um, and one of the podcasts that I listened to um, that are, is basically, I think they're all actors, is the Black, uh, Black Man Can't Jump podcast. I think, I'm pretty sure they're all actors and some of them might have some um, directorial leanings, but they're all actors and, and comedians. And anyway, um, and I can remember them talking about they, they pre- predominantly review um, films that have that are predominantly black cast or have lead black characters in them. And then they review the films themselves and they really go down deep and critique them way better than I could ever do. Um, and, and because they're talking about it from an inside perspective because they've been on sets. They be acting. They have a TV show on Netflix. Um, the Astronauts... 
I can't call it shoot black astronauts that whatever Google it or search it on uh, Netflix and you'll find it. But that's them. That's that's them. The people who uh, Jonathan Braylock, Gerard Milligan um, and James the third. They are a piece of the black astronaut sketch comedy troupe who has a um, show on Netflix. And anyway, the way that they, there was this one particular black, predominantly black film, predominantly black led uh, film that was arguably a really great film. I can't, again, I'm forgetting films, but anyway, they were, they had a really good example of this film that most most folks agreed was a, a bomb film. I can't remember if it was, if these, um, if Beale Street could talk, I can't remember if it was if Beale Street could talk, but it was something, it was a powerful film and it got initially got a hundred percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, but apparently there was a campaign. I don't, it's probably not, uh, if Beale Street could talk, but it was a wonderful film. There was a, maybe it was Moonlight if I'm honest, because I feel like it was Barry Jenkins. Probably. Anyway, um, but it had great reviews. Everybody loved it. But then, and it was 100% fresh for like maybe a week. And then there was either a campaign or just some doofus decided to get people to help tank it uh, or to help get rid of its 100% fresh score. So it was certified 100% fresh for like the first week or two and then no more, right? So anyway, I take all of that with a grain of salt because again, you know, kind of growing up and renewing my mind and understanding that just because somebody purports to be an authority doesn't mean that, that what they say is gospel and you having your own mind and then recognizing that sometimes people just be hateful. They just be hateful and have other motives um, and benefit if your film isn't, you know, it can gross whatever, but like it's important that it doesn't have a perfect rating for them because that does something for them, I guess. Anyway, so, but uh, getting back to Vacation Friends, 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb, 60% fresh um, on Rotten Tomatoes, and 3.5, excuse me, 3 out of 5 on Common Sense, what is it, Common Sense Medium? These be popping up out of nowhere, for real. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, so 3.5, that's essentially like something like a 60, right? Um, 65% or whatever. Um, I actually think this film is Okay. I think it's funny. I think it's okay. Like, I don't think it's exceptional, but I think it's okay. So I'll go into more. Um, But, oh, and the last one is 72% of Google users like this film, of which I am one. I did like it, even though I think it's just okay. Um, So here's the premise. Marcus and Emily enjoy an unusual week without inhibitions. Why can't I read? Let me start over. Marcus and Emily enjoy an unusual week without inhibitions when they meet new friends on vacation, but they are horrified when their new friends, I added this because it feels like there's something missing out of this synopsis, when their new friends Ron and Kayla show up uninvited to their wedding. This is a terrible synopsis, actually, because it probably could have been written a little bit better. Anyway, this film, as I mentioned, was released on last Friday by the time you're um, listening to this thing or August 27th. 
Um, it was directed by Clay Tarver, who I don't know who that is. It stars John Cena, who has been enjoying a lot of success, uh, cinematic success these, these days with uh, Suicide Squad, um, his performance in Suicide Squad, um, and just enjoying a career resurgence, I guess. Lil Rail uh, Howry, which has always been funny and is always working. Yvonne Orji, which I do appreciate, is working and doing her thing because I actually think she's pretty doggone funny. It's just outside, pretty doggone funny outside of Insecure. Um, that who that I've kind of grown bored with that show. Um, although I appreciate it for what it is, I'm kind of bored. Um, which is probably why this is the last season, because Issa probably bored too. Anyway, Meredith Hanger, who I don't know who that is, Robert Wills, Wisdom, Lynn Whitfield, which is Lynn Whitfield. Lynn Whitfield. Hold on, let me see if I know. Oh, Robert Wilson plays the plays in a few things, actually. Um, King Batch, which I'm... <laughs> King Batch is up here. Um, I appreciate him getting work. He's funny and he's cute, so I appreciate him getting work. Um... Yeah, but the, the um, there's Meredith Hanger, who, um, hold on, let me just back up. Uh, John Cena plays Ron. Um, Meredith Hanger, oh, this is kind of whack, because the leads, in my opinion, are Lil Rel and Yvonne. So let me do this in order. So Lil Rel Howery pl- it plays Marcus Parker. Yvonne Orji plays Emily Conway, who is about to be uh, Parker, Emily Parker, or Conway Parker. Um, they meet on the vacation, um, Meredith Hanger, who plays Kayla, and John Cena, who plays Rhyme. They meet them on vacation in um, Mexico. Um, and this film is, in short, the, even though I don't appreciate how the, the synopsis was written, long story short, this is supposed to be This is supposed to be a film, in my opinion, that highlights the need for folks. Actually, it kind of, in a, in a long way, it, it kind of highlights the trials and tribulations of adults making friends. Like, I don't know that that's written anywhere. I don't know if anybody's ever said that. But in a nutshell, to me, this is about, this movie is about adults making friends and the hijinks that ensue are really just movie based but at its core this is a film about adults making friends and so (laughs) i'm going to talk about this thing from that premise so so the film begins with um marcus parker at work being something like a boss. He's like a foreman or something like that. Maybe he's the owner of the company. And, you know, showing out a little bit. Um, Shoot, I might be getting this wrong, but long story short, we are introduced to Marcus as being some sort of owner of a construction company. And we're introduced to Emily as being a powerful woman in her own right, um, who is in a good relationship with Marcus, 
but her family, it's clear that her family is not a fan of Marcus and they make fun of him because somehow or another they denigrate him because they believe that he's like, somehow or another, it's a class, it feels classist. It's very, it starts off very classist, very, um, uh, respectability politics. Um, and it's clear, we, we learn right off the bat that um, Emily's character comes from a very high society black family who's bougie and uh, Marcus does not. And Marcus comes from, a, uh, and I think they're out of Chicago. Yeah, they're, they're based on Chicago, fun fact. Um, everybody knows Lil Rail is from Chicago. He's a big time Chicago star. Um, and so it stands to reason that they would be coming out of Chicago. Anyway, um, and so they come from two different class worlds and which is very absurd to me, um, that we're still putting this in TV as a, as a point for, or as we're putting this in media as a point for real conflict. They come from two different class socioeconomic stratosphere or strata I. And so as a result, there's clash that feels very it's part of the reason why I don't think this is like the best film, but it's okay, is because that's in there. Like, all right, girl, like, fine. Um, don't really care too much about hearing this anymore, but okay. So that's, the, and so the first half, or the, maybe the first 20 minutes of the film is getting an understanding of, that, of the fact that they come, uh, that Emily and Marcus come from two different class um, backgrounds, um, that they are kind of both a little uptight, but Marcus is really uptight, um, which is a negative in this film, um, which again, I take issue with because he's a business owner, a small business owner who's probably getting it coming and going and they make him the most uptight person ever, um, who has a good relationship with his uh, with his, uh, the people that work for his company, but like, he's hard. He's a hard person. And Yvonne, again, we don't, the thing about, um, sorry, not Yvonne. Let me call her by her movie name. Emily. The thing about Emily is I still don't know what the heck she do. Maybe she a lawyer. Perhaps she's a lawyer, but like, we don't see her and her working element. We see Marcus and his, which also feels a little, come on, y'all could, it's 2021. What are we doing? It's 2021. Anyway, but whatever. Okay, I'm just rolling with it. So they go on vacation and it's supposed to be one that's kind of rekindling their love for each other and also an opportunity for Marcus to truly relax. Um, We get the sense from Emily that she recognizes that he really needs to unwind. Um, And we also get the sense that a, a, a pending nuptials are are near like he's gonna ask her to marry him we just don't know when it's gonna happen and we don't know why but we know that on this trip obviously he's gonna use this as an opportunity if he's smart to marry her right but we don't know if it's gonna be a straight shot or whatever because again he's supposed to be really uptight and a perfectionist so anything could happen right so anyway but they go on the trip and they're in I forgot where they go. Probably, you know, Puerto Vallarta or some, or Punta Cana. It's one of those, one of those Mexican touristy places that Americans like to go to. 
Um, so anyway, wherever it is, they go there. And, you know, they, it's clear that as they're going, and this is the wildest thing ever, but as they're in like the transport van from the, from the, uh, airport to their honeymoon resort or not honeymoon resort, but the resort that they're going to, um, they see Ron and Kayla on a jet ski and somehow miraculously we see Ron and we see Kayla like hit taking a hit off a bong or whatever or doing drugs um and they're being super reckless and of course um Emily is like oh this seems fun and then Marcus is like nah that's not fun you're taking your life into your own hands that's dangerous and whatever and it's played out right like that's super whack but you know what's happening but here's the setup so we see that the central cast is here um, and now we need to figure out how their paths collide. So Marcus and Emily get out of the, the, the transport, takes them to their um, hotel. And it's clear that from the first exchange with the, um, the front desk guy, I can't, I'm sure he's got a better title than that, but all I get is front desk guy. Anyway, um, it's clear from the conversation that Marcus is having with the front desk guy that he has had several conversations with this man before, that he has planned something very spectacular, and that the hotel is going to accommodate his request. Then we get to move in, and there is a funny moment that happens because the hotel guy, who's probably over Marcus, want him to stop calling him, um, starts throwing hints at Emily's way, talking about, I think you're in a really love. You're sweet. Maybe not. You, you're going to really love this man. Maybe forever. Like, long story short, doing way too many hints, doing way too much to, you know, kind of give her clues, but like not try to ruin it, that Marcus is obviously going to propose. But Marcus is like, you're doing too much. And that whole exchange is actually hilarious. This is the first truly hilarious piece that comes out of it. And it's pure because you can only imagine somebody who wants it something to be. I can put myself there wanting something to be so perfect and calling somebody way too many times to make sure that it is perfect. And then that person in their zeal to get that thing over the surprise over with overshares a little bit or gets close to oversharing and, and y'all almost get into a fight. Um, but no, Marcus doesn't always, well, actually he looked like he could have boxed him, but Emily's like, okay, girl, well, let me go ahead because I'm ready to get in this suite because I know my man put in some money on this. I know we're about to have a ball. And she's also not a dummy. So she's picking up the fact that the surprise may be what she's thinking it is. And at this point, you a person, you've been connected with another person for a very long time in a committed relationship you kind of know what's around the corner. Either a deeper commitment is around the corner or some other, some sort of deep commitment, next level commitment is around the corner. You can feel it. And so even if she didn't pick up those context clues, I bet you she knew when they got on the plane that this was going to be a life-changing, like she knew he was going to be, it was going to be, um, she knew he was going to propose to her. Like, cause we, everybody, you get it. You, you know, if you are truly in a relationship with your partner, when they ask them, when they ask you to take it to the next level, it should not be a surprise to you. 
if it is a surprise to you, y'all ain't as close as the person that's asking you to take to a next level thinks you are. And y'all need to have a different conversation. Because I remember a couple of years ago, was it a couple of years ago? Because COVID is like strange years. Like it, everything is feels like it's longer in COVID. But y'all remember on social, there was these series of, and, and probably it was black Twitter, Twitter, but I think it was just all over Twitter, where there were these videos of a heterosexual couples. So men asking girl, women to, or people that presented as men um, were asking women or people that presented as women um, to marry them. And, and, and the dummies, this, this is the thing that tripped me out. This is the thing that tripped me out. So the guy with the, pres, pr, uh, presuming it's a guy or that the person is a guy, um, uh, forgive me for saying it's, that's not, I did not mean any disrespect. I was just talking too fast anyway. Um, so the person gets down on there on one knee and it's in front of like a crowd of folks. And, a, and in hindsight, these were probably stunts, but whatever. Um, gets down on one knee, ask uh, the person to marry them. And then the person is like, nah. And then, and then it's like, oh, oh, or whatever. And some of these were probably stunts. Probably all of these were stunts. Because my thing is like, who they, had, I, they better have been stunts. Because who in the heck? And because you know why I think they were stunts? Because the angle was beautiful as if the person that would the asker got one of their friends to record the moment for later. Right. And that friend uploaded it to social. So either you have terrible friends or it was it was a it was a a setup like this was phony. Um, but anyway, like they said, no, each time. But it, but these films that were arguably fake or, or these videos that were arguably fake set up the question, you know, why would you do this? Why would you publicly say no? Why would you do this? And then uh, first off, why in the world would anybody question why a person would say no? They said no because they don't want to. That's the end of the conversation. But see, as a generation and across the globe, we have a hard time with no. And the one time that you should not have a hard time with no is in a relationship. Because if a person is telling you no and then they turn around and change their mind, baby, that sets a precedent, honey. And you really ought to listen. Listen to them the first time. People have a right to change their mind, baby. But like if somebody's telling you no in that very pivotal moment, you've missed some signs along the way and you you shouldn't know. Because again, I go back to... I think it's absurd because the point at which you are asking someone for a deeper level commitment, you already, y'all already should kind of be on that wavelength that that's where it's going, which means y'all should have some adult conversations about your goals. Time frame is irrelevant. And unless someone has specifically said, you know, I need to have a few things in order. I need there to be distance between me, more distance between this particular situation, what have you. Like, unless there are extenuating circumstances, the time frame is irrelevant. But that you guys are on the same wavelength shouldn't, it, it, that's, that's, a, that's necessary, got to be necessary. So the point at which you are asking that person for a deeper level commitment, it should be a foregone conclusion that the answer will be yes. Because what? And so anyway, I say all that to say, Emily knew Marcus was going to ask her to marry him um, on that trip because any thinking person would know that, especially if what we're told to believe about Marcus 
what we're led to believe about him is that he was tight and did things with intention and was very controlling. Them going on the most expensive vacation for any length of time, let alone a whole week, because I think they were there for a week. Come on, she knew. So anyway, so she's all excited. They're going up to the suite. The, the, the front desk guy is still giving way too many hints, but whatever, and they open the door. The suite itself is gorgeous. Rose petals everywhere, candles and things, except it's full of water because uh, the, the uh, hotel, in front, uh, the uh, room uh, um, above them, um, the room above them flooded. And so his surprise is ruined. And now they're trying to find, now they're back down to the front desk. And, you know, Marcus is still trying to salvage this. He's trying to find another room in the the hotel. And, of course, they are booked solid. Booked completely, completely solid. And so insulting that there was a joke that I skipped ahead of time uh, that happened earlier where... uh, uh, Emily was like, oh, this place is too nice. It seems it's too expensive. Like, we could go to the Best Western over by the hotel. I mean, over by the uh, airport. Like she was joking because she, you know, she she was trying to downplay. But at the same time, she was like, this is really, you spent a grip on this, baby. You spent a grip on this because it did look like a bomb, like resort. Anyway, so they go flash forward there after they come back from seeing the flooded um, suite that they were supposed to have had. Um... The, the the front desk guy is like, well, there's a Best Western because every, everything is booked. So that same Best Western, he suggests that they go there. Um, and that's an interesting exchange because he's, you know how front desk folks like to do, concierge like to do. They try to make the best of bad situations um, because that's their freaking job. And especially the ones that are good at it, you know, they really don't want you in their face too long. So they, you know, try to be real slick with their, not slick with their words, but like good with managing the situation, de-escalating the situation. So anyway, um, so he's like, oh, one star, what are, what are, you know, anything above, you know, what's, what's the rating system anyway? It's all subjective, right? Like really trying to put a shine on this terrible uh, doo-doo sandwich of a uh, first half of their trip. So anyway, so Marcus is trying to shake it off because the whole point of him coming there was to propose to the woman that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. So in this moment, he tries to shake it off, tries to recover and begins to ask uh, Emily to marry him. And he's really having a rough time because again, he wanted things to be perfect for his perfect woman. And so he's, he's, trying to get himself together and it's very hard and Emily's like just get just push through it because she knows what she just wants him to finish because he gets down on one knee um and he starts to apologize and tries to push through it but tries starts to apologize for the debacle and the mess and and Emily's just like come on just just give me what I want give me what I want and as they're doing this the couple from before Ron and Kayla Shirt, Ron shirtless in some, in some board shorts or whatever. And Kayla in like a cover up and a swimsuit, uh, like a two piece come into, um, the space. And cause this is happening in the lobby PS. So they, and they, they're witnessing Marcus uh, propose to Kayla. Marcus proposes to Kayla, Kayla, or no, Marcus proposes to Emily. Emily says, yes. 
Ron and Kayla erupt in, in joy. And so does the front desk guy who's probably at this point, just get out of my lobby. Um, but anyway, um, you know, and from there, you know, uh, instantly we learn two things. First, we learn probably actually before uh, Marcus gets on one knee, but we learn that the suite that had flooded above Marcus and Emily's room was uh, Ron and Kayla's room. And they flooded it because they it was the jacuzzi and they forgot to turn it off and flooding. Anyway, so... Uh, Ron and Kayla are going down to straighten up, get, you know, get somebody to come in and, and get the water up, which pause. I don't know why, why uh, Marcus and Emily needed to leave their suite because it needed to be cleaned. But long story short, well, hold on. Let me get to my point. So, so Ron, Ron, and and Kayla come down. They're trying to sort out the suite. Talk. They're sorry that they flooded the place, but um, yeah, they give a they. You know, they're just going down to sort it out with the with the front desk. And after M, after Marcus, um, after Marcus proposes to Emily, they're about to go to the Best Western, and. Ron basically is like, oh, no, absolutely not. Ron and Kayla are like, absolutely not coming to our suite. We're in the presidential suite. And so they move all of their things to Ron and Kayla's play, uh, Ron and Kayla's uh, um, suite, which is the presidential suite. And this is where I'm concerned. This is where it doesn't make any sense. This movie doesn't make sense in a lot of places. But in this particular place, my thing is, if, if Marcus and Emily couldn't stay in their suite because it was flooded, why could we then, why were uh, Ron and Kayla able to not only stay in their suite, but then offer uh, Emily and Marcus a place to stay in their suite because they had an extra room there. If, if the downstairs was flooded, baby, yours is flooded worse, but whatever is the movie and we, we needed the four of them to be together. So they're together in the presidential suite reluctantly Kayla uh reluctantly Emily and Marcus move their things over there because at the end of the day they want to be able to still enjoy this beautiful resort and still enjoy their vacation now that they are um engaged and so from there hilarity ensues they get into a bunch of situations where uh you know, there's a lot of alcohol and apparently there's also drugs. Fun fact, um, Kayla made them a martini um, that had uh, cocaine around the rim, which first off, that sounds like some very unhealthy, unsafe stuff. First off, it's cocaine. Second off, who, what is the benefit of putting cocaine around the rim of a martini glass? Like that was the most absurd of all the absurd things that happened. That just seemed like a joke that wasn't funny for any reason. It was just absurd. And that's why I was put in there anyway. So a lot of things happen. They do some weird stuff. Um, There's a point at which there is a point at which. So, uh, so what we learned very early on is that Ron and Kayla are not rich they're just spending all of the money that they have to have this fabulous vacation. We don't know, we don't actually learn why they went on this vacation until the very end of the film, which I will get to. Um, 
But so they're literally blowing hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, just blowing it. So they rent, they rent this, the, the most expensive, uh, the most expensive suite in the resort, which is the presidential palace. They rent jet skis, which, you know, are super expensive and wreck them. They rent a boat, which at first it looks like the boat that they like, it's like a skiff or something like that. Um, at first I wasn't sure whether or not they stole it because up until this point, you know, we'd just been introduced to Ron and Kayla and Kayla put Coke around the rim of their, uh, glass, the rim of their martini glass and, and didn't tell, uh, Emily and Marcus that they were coking them up. She was coking them up. Um, and they were doing a bunch of drugs and she said she worked for uh, a doctor's office and she got the drugs from a doctor's office and, or at least she alluded to the fact that she got them from the doctor's office in any way. So it kind of feels like these Marcus and Emily have come across these drug runners who are smuggling, who have smuggled drugs into Mexico, um, which is supposed to be super funny because the, the gag is that you're supposed to smuggle drugs outside of Mexico, but whatever. The gag is that they're smuggling it in. Um, and they're doing all these kinds of drugs and that they're doing all these wild things. And like, again, they've ruined the, they ruined the jet skis. They wrote, they sunk the boat that they were on that initially it looked like they might've stolen it, but no, they just rented it. And they got, I guess they got insurance and they wrecked it. Like it was wrecked. Um, and then they just begin to do a bunch of wild, crazy things. And the last wild and crazy thing that they do is the second to last. So at the end of the, the vacation, they go to this cave and they basically, in an indigenous ceremony, um, Marcus and Emily are wed and Ron and Kayla are the best man and maid of honor. Um, and you know, Marcus and Marcus and Emily do this largely because they're vacation friends, right? As I've already said before, you know, it's vacation. We never see these people again. It's whatever. So they go through it. And then at the end of their ceremony, they're on a cliff, right? They're in a cave that's on the top of a cliff. And at the end of the ceremony, they all jump off. They all jump off the cliff which seems extremely high, like extremely high. Um, and then they go back to these, the presidential suite and they have a lot of drugs and, do a, and drink a lot. And there are some hazy moments where it appears as if Kayla is riding on top of Marcus, but Marcus is drunk dinner, high dinner. Um, so he don't really know. He's just seeing flashes of things. And then they wake up the next morning and it's time for Emily and Marcus. Well, it's actually time for all of them to go to the airport and get back to where they were, back to where they were going. Um, Kayla and Ron back to Oregon where uh, Ron is a park ranger. uh, And uh, Kayla is like a, works in the doctor's office. I really don't know her job. And, you know, Marcus and Emily back to Chicago, where I think Emily's a lawyer. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know that she's a lawyer. I think I might be confusing Yvonne's uh, character on on uh, Insecure with her character in this film, but whatever. So they part each other at the airport. Marcus and Emily are like, 
super hungover and want this vacation to be over because it was super fun, but they, they would like to get back to their life. And they're a little annoyed with um, Kayla and Ron at this point. Marcus thinks that he might have had uh, sex with Kayla because, again, one of the flashes of the images was her riding on top of him. Emily, you get the sense that Emily has some memories of her own, but she's certainly, because she's smart, she not saying, she not saying, sharing none of it. Um, because what? She, so she played like boo-boo the fool. She don't know what he's talking about. She don't remember nothing because she was too high and drunk. Um, he's the only one like, oh, I kind of remember, but I'm going to play it off. And they also both agree. It's like they have this unwritten, unspoken agreement between the both of them that they will never see Ron and Kayla again. Like, they're way too wild for us. Yeah, I made y'all our maid of honor, a best man in this uh, indigenous ceremony. But we didn't mean that for real. Like, we're married in our hearts, and we believe we're married. We're going to go through this wedding through with the parents. Because, again, Emily goes is from a high society family who's hoity-toity. And so they're going to have their wedding. And so, anyway, they're just going to go through those motions because Emily loves her Marcus. But they will never see uh, Kayla and Ron again. That's, or, you know, or so they think. So anyway, flash forward, they get back to normal, and here comes the wedding. Now, there's a running gag that uh, Marcus is not friends with and actually does not like Gabe, Emily's brother, who's played by King Batch. And that at one point, Marcus punched out, uh, punched Gabe out because he was being stupid. And anyway, so they're at some retreat. I'm assuming some hoity-toity place up in the forest in Illinois um, where, uh, Emily's family is putting the bill for this magnificent wedding that they're supposed to have and that Emily cannot get out of. And fun fact, um, Harold Conway, which is Emily's daddy played by Robert Wisdom, do not like, uh, Marcus. Do not like Marcus because he thinks he's beneath her his daughter, um, not good enough for his daughter and so on and so forth. And again, Marcus had already punched out his son, Gabe, right? Um, because Gabe is a creep and probably deserved it. Um, but you know, so again, we're going back to this whole class warfare sort of thing where they're disrespecting Marcus because he owns his own business, but they're making it seem like he works for, this company that he actually owns. Um, so he's not given any respect, which again is late and tired because it's 2021. I thought we were over these class class issues as a vehicle for the plot, uh, as like a plot device in movies, but here we are. Um, and so anyway, I guess I'm just frustrated because the funnest thing about it is literally the personalities of these two different couples that's the fun that's the funny thing that's the funny thing why is the heck why is this class thing an issue it's not funny anymore it feels like the tiredest 80s movie premise ever but anyway that's why I just, again this is why i just think it's okay because it feels like a tired 80s movie um except it's got modern like but for the wild antics that happened on vacation and the ones that ensue in the film when they when they're 
you know, getting closer to the, the nuptials. It's a whack movie. It's tired. It's late and it's lame. But anyway, but let me go to the good parts. So, um, so there's a weekend excursion. And again, Emily's family is hoity-toity. Harold is super bougie. Um, and so, and Harold's mama played by Lynn, uh, Harold's wife played by Lynn Whitfield. Um, what's Lynn's? Suzanne. So Harold and Suzanne are planning this fantabulous something or other. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's a wedding, it's a wedding weekend, right? So there's lots of money, lots of things flowing. Marcus's people come here. Um, Nancy is his mama. Larry is, um, his daddy and Nancy and Larry are country people, country, super country. They come with a bottle of BSOP. Um, because again, they spent their hard on money on that BSOP and they're going to bring it to share with the family, even though, um, uh, Harold has like wine cellar full of full of expensive wines and things like that and cognac and all of that stuff. But Larry brought, oh, see, I didn't got real country. Hold on. Larry brought, thank you. Cause you know, what I was about to say, <laughs> he brought, he brung his, um, that's what I was going to say. He brung his best. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, he spent his hard earned money and told you how much it was too. Again, a very, uh, of this movie, there were very funny moments in the middle of the droll. There were very funny moments. And so one of the funny moments to me was Nancy and Harold coming in with that bottle of VSOP talking about, I've been paid $80 for this shoe. Here you go. This is the fancy. Because at the end of the day, a person bringing you a gift isn't a guarantee. Because at the end of the day, whether you poor or you rich, when you do go to a fancy do you bring a gift if it's the best you can do you honor that gift you honor it and anyway I just loved it because I just, I loved it I loved it because it was VSOP and if you don't get the joke you don't get the joke it's come on if you don't get it you don't get it but anyway um <laughs> I just loved it loved it loved it loved it loved it anyway so of course so they're at the, so if, uh, I'm about to call her by her, uh, actual name, Emily and Marcus are at this weekend getaway. Marcus is uncomfortable as per usual, um, because her family is bougie. Emily is just trying to make it through because her family is bougie and she just want to be with Marcus. Uh, she wants this whole charade to be over with so she can be with her baby anyway. And there's a certain point where in this hoity toity to do long story short, here come Ron and Kayla literally busting through um, a gate at the property to come see Marcus and Kayla, uh, Marcus and Emily get married. And they're very offended because they, they are the maid and maid of honor and best man. Cause that's, they really believe what, what Marcus and Emily told them on vacation on the, uh, the retreat. They believe that for real. And actually Ron said, don't say this junk. If you don't mean it, don't play with me. I'm for real about mine. I take my stuff very seriously. And so shame on Marcus and Emily for faking the funk, making it seem like they wasn't that Ron and, and Kayla weren't about to be there about their word. Um, so anyway, here come Ron and Kayla 
being all extra, being as fancy as they possibly could be. Ron is in his dress. He's in the military and he's in his dress uniform, but it's not buttoned up correctly because he's, he's real relaxed. Kayla in her best sundress, okay? Her best sundress. And they go through the rigmarole. They conveniently bust through the gate right where Emily and Marcus are um, outside. And so they, they, they meet up with them and they obviously mortified uh, Marcus and Emily ask how you got here. And then uh, Ron and Kayla go, you know, they go through the, the whole chain of events that led them there, that they had to do all the searches and stuff that they thought that the number that they gave them wasn't a real number or that, or, or that the, when they parted each other, Ron and Emily gave them, gave Marcus, no, Ron and Kayla gave uh, Emily and Marcus their number because Emily and Marcus felt like they, they, they lost their phones. Now, what we know is that they didn't want Ron and Kayla to have their number because they was not planning on being in contact with these fools any further so anyway long story short basically ron and kayla become detectives to find them and they finally find them and because ron is reckless he crashes through the daggone gate and one of the funny if not the funniest scene in this whole film is (laughs) when they uh marcus and emily are confronting ron and kayla about their appearance at this private party and at one point (laughs) kayla is trying to be nice but it's like and 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 you just crashed through the gate she said she said you just crashed through the gate Uh, who gonna pay for the gate this this ain't covered in the insurance this property ain't ours who gonna pay for that (laughs) it was hilarious because again too real, too real experience worried about getting your deposit back on a rental space and wondering who going to pay for the damage to whatever thing on the property that you're renting. Because in that statement spoke volumes. In that statement, she says it wasn't covered. So she lets you know it's not covered by insurance. Um, there's going to be a cost and I'm not paying it. And which is why she asked, who going to pay for this? Um, because it certainly is not going to be me was the other part of that question, um, which was actually a statement, not a question. Um, anyway, it was hilarious because, again, of the real things that's very real that you could relate to. That's one of them because that's that's me all day. That's me all day. Um, this thing happened. It ain't covered. Who paying for it? Because it's not me. Um and figure it out now because don't nobody need to ask me a single solitary question about it because I'm not paying for it. Anyway, so blah, blah, blah. This whole weekend goes about it as well as you would think it would go. Ron and um, Kayla are magically embraced by the family. Um, and Ron is more liked by Harold than Marcus is, which is wild. But the reason why, uh, Ron is liked by Harold is because they're both Marines or Green Berets. And anyway, um, Kayla, she helps, uh, a grandmother of, um, of Emily's open up and start talking and, and get up and start walking because up, up until when we meet the grandmother, she's in a wheelchair. But by the end of her interactions with um, Kayla, she's up and walking. 
and interacting with folks and she feels better and blah, blah, blah. You know what happens? There's a moment where both Kayla and, um, no, both Emily and Marcus kind of kick, not kind of, but absolutely kick Ron and Kayla to the curb right before the wedding. Cause they're like, you've caused nothing but drama. Y'all play too much. I need y'all out. So they leave and then they come to realize that, you know, uh, the whole time Ron was talking Marcus up to Harold to um, because Ron really likes Marcus and he was trying to bridge the gap between Harold and uh, Marcus and Kayla helped um, her grandmother, uh, Emily's grandmother, be able to feel better. Um, And yeah, there's a really weird, there's a really weird um, turn of events that happens um, where, okay, so let me just tell you what, what, what happens. So again, I told you Marcus the whole time thinks that Kayla that he had sex with Kayla. When Kayla and Ron pop up to uh, Marcus and and, uh, Emily's engagement, Kayla is pregnant, seven months pregnant. Marcus thinks it's his because seven months ago they had their vacation. Um, And so there's a moment where Ron and Kayla get on the mic and they're about to, they're about to, you know, announce something big. Marcus steals the Marcus steals the show and says, I, seven months ago, I had sex with Kayla and, um, she's pregnant now and I'm going to be a man about mine. I'm going to take my responsibility. The thing is what Kayla and Ron were going to announce is no, Marcus is not the father of this baby. Um, but the reason why they, what she was saying was the reason why they went on that vacation, what, what Kayla was about to explain, Kayla and Ron were about to explain before Marcus interrupted them in this big grand gesture was that, um, basically that, um, the reason why they, Ron and Kayla were on this vacation and spending all the money they had was because Ron was infertile or no, Ron was sterile. Ron, it was, it was found out that Ron was sterile. Um, and so that they couldn't as a couple get pregnant and they were devastated. So they had purposed to take that bad news and turn it into something positive so they could live their life. And that, wow. Because you could Understanding, of course, they were acting crazy and being ridiculous. And of course, it's over the top because it's a movie. But I know that you have met people in your life who've gotten a bad prognosis, something life changing, because in that moment they were thinking, well, unless we adopt, we will never. First off, we will never have biological children. Second off, the only way we will have children is if we adopt. And that is as a person who. My husband and I are actively working to become parents. Um, This is an emotional commitment. It's an emotional thing. And so I can appreciate a person not truly understanding how emotional that would be 
learning that news, how emotional that news would be. But for many people, that is very life-changing emotional news to not be able to have biological children. And I could see how after getting that news or any news, really any life-changing news that you would go on a huge vacation. I can remember since my, my aunt passed, my aunt passed in 2000, January, uh, January, my aunt, whom I treated as a second mother, um, passed away July 4th, 2016. My mama and my daddy nursed her on to glory. She was, she did hospice in my parents' house. Um, and they were there with her right until the end, the very end when my mama was holding her hand when she took her last breath. And from that moment until this one, my parents have purposed to spend more time with family and have fun as much as possible because this thing ain't, ain't promised. And you can appreciate how, and I'm sorry if that was a trigger for, for anyone, I, I do apologize. Um, but that was a traumatic moment. Taking care of a loved one in hospice is traumatic for everyone involved, right? Every single body involved. And also shout out to those hospice nurses. Anybody that's a hospice care worker, that's a special type of person. That takes a special, I'm getting full even think about it, but that takes a special personality. And so, and a special like mindset too, because Ooh, death man ain't for the weak. Like, that sounds, that sounds weird to say, but like, only the strong are at the deathbed. The, the, and the committed. Even if you're weak, the commit, only, only there's a certain type of person that sees the end of a, uh, sees someone to the end. And that's, to me, that's an honor and a privilege. And I don't, I know that probably sounds weird to a lot of folks, but I just, my admiration for my parents went sky freaking high after that um, because that was a powerful thing. And I can remember my mama saying, you know, I was there when she was I was there when she was born. It's fitting and only right. And God ordained that I'm, he- I'm, I'm here. I was there for her when she left this planet. And that's how my mama saw it. And my dad try and I've shared this story before and sorry to turn it down. But like I can appreciate how someone there life outlook can change because I've seen it. And while my parents weren't unhappy before, and we've always traveled as a family, we have always traveled out of the country, all we have always traveled. But when my aunt passed away, a switch happened. And so now it wasn't just let's do this. It was let's be intentional about this. If we go, so we from Missouri, no, they're not from Missouri. I'm from Missouri. They're from other places. Uh, mama from Kansas, daddy from Louisiana. But they've spent the bulk of their life at this point um, in Missouri. And so even if they go, again, pull it up on a map. If you're from the UK, one of my our UK friends, you pull it up on a map. Missouri's darn near in the middle of the country. So go along with me. Even if they're going to Oklahoma, which we got people in Oklahoma, they're going to Oklahoma. That's, that's, that's exciting to them. If they're going to South Africa, it's the same level of excitement because they treat it as an opportunity that they can't take for granted. 
So they don't take trips for granted. They don't take family time for granted. Not that they took it for granted before, it's just they have a new resolve because of that very life-changing experience that they went through. Um, and so looking back on Ron and Kayla's actions, you can appreciate how they were just out here living life to the fullest, saying money is what it is. We'll get more of it because that's true. You will get more of it. And if there is a lesson that I'm glad was by the end of this thing, obviously what ends up happening is Kayla, uh, no, Emily and um, Marcus push Kayla and Ron away, but um, they come back together, of course. And Kayla is actually pregnant by Ron because when they jumped off the the cliff, uh, something about the impact made him not sterile, which doesn't seem real to me, but whatever. Um, But in actuality, if you understand how uh, body parts work, especially um, genitalia works, Sometimes in male genitalia, um, things get clogged like a drain. And I'm pretty sure you hate that analogy. I hated saying it as it was leaving my lips, but it's done now. So we're going to move on. Um, anyway, so and so it, it perhaps it's possible for there to be a major impact and that to loosen things up and make things work and so anyway he she's pregnant by ron and she's very excited and they're going to name the baby marcus after marcus who ron is counts as his best friend um and blah 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 in the end of course ron and um ron and kayla and marcus and emily come back together in a ceremony you know ron is the best man Uh, kayla is also the uh maid of honor because that's what they actually wanted, um, Emily and Marcus. And then we end the movie back in Mexico at that resort with Ron and uh, Kayla getting married on the cliff exactly where uh, Marcus and Kayla originally got married. And then at the very, very end, they all four jump off again, and that's the end of the movie. So again, this movie was okay. It had very funny parts, as I've described. But overall, again, I kind of already summed it up. It felt like a bad 80s movie or a movie, not a bad 80s movie, but a movie that had been done before and likely done in the 80s. And because of the concept of we we totally understood what Marcus did. He owned his own construction firm. We really didn't know too much about what Emily does, except that she came from a rich family. And the family was rich and bougie. The thing that frustrated me is that while I appreciate Ron and his devotion to Marcus, and truly he's a person that befriends people and is very loyal to them um, when he does befriend folks, but like it, it, it took Ron to Ron, who Harold didn't know from Adam. The only thing they had in common was their military service to make you warm up to this man who's gonna be your son-in-law, who's showing you better than he can tell you that he's got something going up his sleeve. Like if you really wanna be about respectability politics, what's more respectable than a person starting their own construction business, which construction never goes out of style. They're always building and, and always renovating a thing or two. He literally built his own construction business and it takes you 
it takes you, especially if you're into respectability politics, it takes you befriending this white man who's a park ranger to see the value in your future son-in-law who your daughter loves, to see value in him. Dumbest thing, very dumb, very respectability politics because the, the thing about it is whether we like it or not, this movie is saying that it, it's, it comes... It feels like, again, this feels like a, a, a movie that predominantly, an 80s movie that predominantly starred white people. So the, cla- the, the race issue isn't a factor because when you put it, when you put black people in the scenario and you have those white guys, the friend, it's not the fact that the white guy is the friend. It's the fact that the father responded to this white guy who, if you, if you subscribe to respectability top politics, is lower class, arguably a little lower class even than Marcus, but it takes, but because if he's white and because in a lot of ways, respectability politics is your proximity to whiteness and how you can perform whiteness better. Like who can form performing whiteness better? Let's be for real. Like it's really kind of, maybe that's a bastardization of respectability politics, but that's kind of how it's perceived today. Your proximity to whiteness, how you perform, quote unquote, whiteness to white people and white mainstream culture. That's respectability politics. That's 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 my understanding. I'm not saying that's what it is universally. That's my understanding of it. Um, And maybe it's flawed and I fully uh, I fully accept that. But I'm not, I have seen respectability politics in my own world. When country, my people are country, country than country. But when we go out in public, you're not supposed to, first off, the way I'm talking right now, if I were in public, uh, my family would cringe. Uh, the, the, the euphemisms that I use and um, not saying a phrase is correct. Like, why am I going through this? I, the, I'm hoping that the people that listen to me understand what the heck respectability politics is and I don't have to do too much explaining. But if you don't Google it, um, not trying to be unkind, but like I believe you to be a very smart, capable person who understands the, the freeness of Google and your ability to use it whenever you choose. Um, and so anyway, it's just... I find it very odd and very frustrating, but it should not be super frustrating that in this 2020 film that feels very, very based, at least loosely based on an 80s film that starred white people, they use the same premise, but didn't get it right because when you include black folks and you switch who the, the, who the sidekicks are, because in this concept, it's Ron and Kayla are kind of the sidekicks. They're just the white sidekicks. Um, it just didn't sit with me that it took this black man to record. It took a white man for this black man to recognize the value of this other black man who his daughter loves. Kind of disrespectful, very disrespectful, but it's a movie. Anyway, despite those flaws, the movie was funny. Um, John Cena has been funny to me. Um, of course, Lil Rail. Um, and Yvonne are extremely funny to me and I'm glad to see them working and winning. I appreciate the 60% score on this film because I don't think it's more than that. I think that's, that's fitting. Um, again, I go back and forth with whether or not to put stock. Well, actually no, how much stock to put in, um, 
critic reviews because again, there's always a motive. Everybody's got a motive. Um, sometimes it's not pure. Sometimes it's not for film's sake, it's for another reason. But I actually think this is deserved. It's not better than 6.3 or 60% fresh or three out of five. It's not better than that, I don't think. Um, but it is an interesting movie and I'm glad it was on Hulu. I did not have to go to the theaters to see it. Um, and yeah, I'm looking for more fun things with Yvonne. I wanna see Yvonne and uh, Lil Rel in more things. I do, I do, I do. Because if you remember, if you watch Insecure, you know that they were linked for a second in Insecure. They were both lawyers. Lorel was in Chicago, of course. You know that Insecure was um, based in, in L.A., but that Yvonne, as an attorney in the show, Molly, Molly, Yvonne plays Molly in the show. Molly goes to Chicago for a little while so she can work on this case, meets Lil Rail's character, has, an, has a, a relation... Mm, has relations with him, has has something with him, and then she drops him in the dirt because he's not his her ideal image of what her partner would be, which is another reason why I'm kind of through with this film, with this show, because sure, but mm, let's get deeper than that. Let's change the channel a little bit on that, but like maybe that not every show is everything to everybody, and that's probably true for me and Insecure. Anyway, um, but yeah, okay. So um, watch this film. I actually think it's funny. It's, for, it's got lots of funny parts in it. Just take it with a grain of salt. It's a good time. Just take it with a grain of salt. Um, all right. So now that um, I'm ending, I, wanna, I want to give you, I want to give you a, um, a tip if you want to help folks in the Gulf, there is a group called the Cajun Navy Relief. Um, it's CajunNavyRelief.com. Well, it's called the Cajun, I think they just call it Cajun Navy for short. But um, CajunNavyRelief.com, if you want to help, these folks are the first on the ground. These folks are the ones that you see on TV in the little boats, uh, little pontoons going out and picking up people um, that are sitting on top of their roof or they're in the attic and trying to crawl out. These are the folks that go rescue them when the water is, is real high um, because they just, they go rescue folks. So anyway, if you want to donate to them, um, I will put, these people stay on the ground. Um, they are the first responders, responders to the first responders to the first responders. Um, and they are a nonprofit. If you go to their website, all their information is there. Um, they've got an email. They've got a phone number. They've got a mailing address, EIN, all of that. Um, there is, oh, and fraud alert. And I'm going to give you this information because all of their stuff is on their website. But a fraud alert, if you try to Google this, do not, do not, I repeat, because the scammers are out, do not uh, give to the fundraiser that is Cajun Navy Relief Volunteers. That is not these people. Cajun Navy Relief. Cajun Navy Relief. That's the people you want to donate to. Not Cajun Navy Relief Volunteers. That's a scam. It's a scammer. Um, and any variation that is not CajunNavyRelief.com. Actually, just go straight to CajunNavyRelief.com. Don't Google it. Put in C-A-J-U-N-N-A-V-Y-R-E-L-I-E. EF.com. Go to them and they'll give you all the information you need. You can see the 990. You, all the information is above board. It's right there. 
donate to them if you want to help uh, the Gulf, um, folks in the Gulf. Um, I thank God that it, it's looking like the flooding was not as bad as Katrina, but still people are displaced. People are without power. We got people out of power in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Florida. My people, I've got a, one of my sisters and her kids, they left because they weren't sure how the hurricane was going to turn. You know, I got people in Louisiana. So my brother who's in New Orleans, he actually stayed there and he wrote it out, which, but he was in one of the high land areas. He was not in the life ninth ward. So they actually stayed and wrote it out and they're still doing okay. They're still without power, but they're doing okay. Um, my sister left the state completely, even though she's in the North. Um, she left the state completely and they went to Miami and now they're stuck in Miami. And so not stuck, but you know, it's hard getting back to Louisiana. So, you know, prayers up for them too, so they can get home safely. Cause who knows how long they'll be in Miami. Um, my other brother that, uh, lives in North Louisiana, he and his wife, they're all right. Um, they're, they're, they're doing okay. It didn't, it really didn't hit. Um, my people are from in the Monroe area, Monroe and, um, Slidell and, um, uh, oh shoot. I forgot the other one. Shreveport. They're in the Shreveport area. Um, they're okay. It's just a lot of rain and wind damage, but nothing like New Orleans. Um, but yes, and that's just my people. That's just my, my, uh, the few of my siblings, um, and their outcome. I, I, they said one person has passed away. We don't know that that's it. So send money to Cajun Re- Navy Relief. What did I just say? CajunNavyRelief.com. Go to their website and donate. Um, and yeah, you're really going to make a big difference. So thank you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you. If you want to rate and subscribe this thing, do so. I appreciate you for doing that. Share this episode with anybody you think might dig it. Um, if you leave a positive comment, I will absolutely read it. Once I see it, I do appreciate you. This is a hobby, and I appreciate you for helping me do my hobby. All right. Until next time, y'all, be safe. Get your COVID shot if you have it. Stay masked up. Appreciate you. Till next time.